Konnichiwa. This is Erica. Hey everyone, this is Free, and we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. You're listening to Super Smash Hose. Today we are joined by Amber and Bran from Temple University, Japan. Hi, kia ora.、Um, my name is Amber Imai. I'm a student at Temple University, Japan.、Um, I'm also on the student government panel、uh, as the student organization liaison, and my major is psychology, minor in art. And this is my colleague, Bran. Hi, and my name is Brian Cowart.、Um, I'm a political science major at Temple University Japan, and the current、uh, student government president. Amazing. And so today,、um, would you like to、um, give a, give some background to what you like to address today, and some yeah, what what you guys do at Temple?、Um, yep. So、uh, I hit you guys up a couple of days ago. Because、mm-hmm. um, we were trying to get some tuition reduction or at least a discount. Because, as you know, most universities today、um, have shifted to online education. And so, the problem with that for a lot of our students is that、um, we're left wondering like, why are we paying for these tuition fees, like facility fees, which is around $270 at our university, so 27,000 yen. Um, why haven't we gotten re- any reimbursement or、um, any discounts on our courses? Because obviously the quality of education would decrease because you're not in the lesson in real time. It's hard to communicate with the professors if you're not in class, and it's hard to even bounce off ideas from your classmates from a computer screen rather than in person.、Um, and we were really disappointed with the fact that we brought it up towards、um, our administration. Um, and we asked them, like, hey, do you think we can get a discount? Because us as student government and a lot of the student body are left wondering, like, how can we pay for rent right now and tuition and all of this during coronavirus, COVID? You know, like, we don't have any source of income. We don't have any jobs right now.、Um, cut us some slack, you know? And so, Bran and us, we.、Uh, um, Wrote up a petition and tried to get as many signatures as we can as possible. We finally got the chance to talk to administration.、Um, but yeah, no,、uh, the progress is well, it's still in a work in progress. So, yeah, we're,、um, it kind of started from, I want to say, the beginning of March when we first moved to online learning. And from there, I was just receiving a lot of messages from students talking about. Um, difficulties that they were having, you know, just kind of being students, like concentrating in their classes.、Um, and then also at the time, we were having Japan, was, Japan, Tokyo specifically, was kind of hit with this like panic buying of like paper products and food.、Um, so there were times where I was having students like reaching out to me talking about, like, you know, where do I find food? Like, what can I even buy? You know, these are a lot of these students were here for the first time.、Um, so I had to like work with our associate dean 
to kind of set up a pipeline to help get them supplies or even just kind of let them know what they can buy, like try to help them know, like, you know, you know, how it's kind of different from like the Western world or like, you know, from North America. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So from there, you know, we just kept getting more complaints about teachers not even holding lectures or teachers not replying um, in a timely fashion, teachers not even posting grades to this like online forum, you know? Um, So we just kind of felt that we're not getting what what we've already paid for, for one. And then, um, then, you know, coming up on the next semester, we're still expected to pay, you know, what we would pay normally, even though we're having this kind of diminished experience from school. So, um, yeah, like Amber said, we've uh, kind of been going from there from the petition. Yeah, um, I just want to interject and, for a second uh, okay. there, Bran. Um, mm-hmm. So TUJ, it's kind of a unique university in Japan, right? Because it's not, um, gosh, sorry, my words are a little bit slow today. It's not majority Japanese students, right? It's got a bit, a bit of a different demographic. And so the needs, I assume, are a bit more unique, like how you were saying, things like just navigating Japanese society to get things like paper products or food um, mm-hmm. or the assistance they need from the government. Is that, am I right in making that assumption? Yeah, so um, at the last time I checked, which was I think at the beginning of beginning of spring semester, end of last fall semester, our demographics were about 40% Japanese students, uh, 40% United States students, and then 20% from other countries. So we were having um, a lot of students that, you know, were, come, were here for the first time or maybe have only been here for like less than a year, and they um, under normal circumstances, you know, they would have time to kind of figure out things on their own, like, you know, you know, not even just like the language barrier, but just, you know, where can I buy, you know, certain things like many of them didn't know that you can't buy things like painkillers from convenience stores, whereas like that's pretty normal in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like these small things here, just kind of adding up to like, um, a cha- you know, a larger challenge for them. Yeah, I think like, as you said, like getting used to you know life at university it's not just about getting used to classes and the schedule but it's about you know some people make lifestyle changes move you know across continents so it's a big difference for, I mean, from you know their lifestyle from before for sure um i just wanted to um, mention that for any of our listeners who might not know but so temple university japan it's a american school um and there's a campus in japan right and so it's a it's not a Japanese institution. So um, yeah. I assume um, it's very different from. Um, I'm not sure how other Japanese universities are handling the situation. I I don't think they're handling it um, amazingly either, from what I've heard. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that. So um, our university's main campus is in Philadelphia, and I think we're just pretty much like a satellite of it. Um, but also just to add to what Brand said, um, having to move to Japan from the United States or wherever you're from, like we don't just have United States uh, um, citizen students, we have students from Dubai, we have students from Singapore even. But um, another obstacle in their way is just the isolation, not talking about lockdown, but the language barrier. So 
like when you move to a new country with a completely different language, it's one, it's hard to adapt and read all the signs in kanji. And um, that adds to this feeling of like, you can't really talk to anyone or ask for help in public. So um, you can, but you know, it's just so scary to have to talk to these people. That's why they come to us, you know, they come to student government and talk to their universities and try to get support. And we try to be there for them as much as possible. Um, but I find that a lot of the issues and problems that we face at our university doesn't just happen to us. It's not a localized issue. We see so many similar issues in United, like um, in the Rome campus or even like main campus and other American universities. Not the language issue, but like having um, an institution or like a, a department to talk to and to help us guide us through university life and because honestly we, we feel lost everyone feels lost when they go into university so right i mean and then add to that just being in a place that speaks you know a completely different language and you know yeah. um i like i myself the whole first year i felt like i always had this kind of underlying feeling that I didn't know what was going on around me at any time <laughs> like I may have had an idea but you know there's just so much and I think that just becomes or that I think that just comes from not being able to read at not being able to read things around you um whereas like if I was in the states I can see billboards I know what they mean I can read signage I know what all that means but then being in a place where like all of this is new and you can't um process information because you can't comprehend it it's um, I think it just maybe adds to the difficulty. Right. So, so like, that, that normal difficulty of adjusting to a new university, a new country, new experience, plus everything that we are currently experiencing because of the pandemic has basically ju just created a situation where you almost feel like TUJ does not have its students' best interest in heart or um, like, like what exactly is, if we can try to narrow down what the, the issue is that we're trying to to look at here well I'd say that I, yeah I think that there's obviously um there's a lot of people at work for the institution that care a lot about our students mm -hmm. um yes, yes there's also maybe a couple of actors there who um understand that TUJ in Japan, as it exists in Japan, is technically a, it's an LLC, it's a for-profit company. Right. Um, understand the sort of kind of uh, financial aspect or the, you know, profit-bearing aspect that TUJ has to it. So there's that as well. Um, but the problem is that you know we're we're not employees um we are students and you know we're probably the most vulnerable demographic in our you know in in our sphere you know so yeah, yeah i just don't think the maybe it's like a mix of obviously this is a whole new in, you know situation you know we don't really know what the regular protocols for something like this is is because it hasn't happened before um yeah. so you know there's like a delay in reacting and then there's you know uh the possibility of like taking missteps you know which was the case for a lot of our emails that were going out students were receiving them yeah. and didn't understand what they meant because they were so awkwardly worded i guess mm -hmm. um and then also some, sometimes they just came too late and 
you know, it, it just doesn't help. And it just breeds a lot of uncertainty for the students. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you said, uh, you mentioned that it's an LLC, it's a nonprofit, uh, sorry, for-profit, meaning it's funded by shareholders. Um, I personally feel when I'm at university, I'm treated like a worker for my university, like the rules that are in place for us isn't really functioning like a normal university. I bring this up because as student organizational liaison, I have to handle club leaders and discuss with all of our clubs like what their demands are, what they want to happen from a university. Also, how can we make our student body and student life better? And every single semester, every single meeting I have with them, everyone says, please get us self-funding. We want to be able to fundraise for our clubs and raise money for ourselves. And I totally agree with that. You know, it teaches students business. It teaches students to be entrepreneurs or even stay on task and be on to it. It teaches you important life skills to learn how to fundraise and self be self-sufficient for your club. But our university does not allow that. Why? Because it's an LLC. It's a business, meaning it clashes with their policies in place and whatever that's in their law, like it, not law, but you know, like their legal documents, like yeah. it's just, we're treated like workers. We want to be students. We want to be educated. We want to learn skills. This is why we're here at university. We're not working because we're paying you. We're trying to get an education out of this, you know? So that's our problem. I feel as if that a lot, our student body is treated not like students. We're just treated like cash cows or workers. And it's just so annoying. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an interesting um, comment that you made about like university treating you like you're a cash cow or a worker. Um, I'm going to make it a little bit broader because obviously I didn't go to TUJ, so I can't like sympathize with the personal experience of being a student at Temple. But even at my yeah. own universities, I have felt I've, I've done two degrees now. So I've been to, well, two degrees, but I've studied at three universities, um, including Sofia in Japan. And I mean, I completely agree. There is this kind of, this idea that students are clients of the university rather than mm-hmm. we are not yeah. there to learn anymore. We are there to, I mean, and this is the way it's, it seems to me, I, I might be wrong or right, but um, it seems that students are kind of there because they need to be in order to get a job. It's like this self-fulfilling cycle of capitalism. Yeah. And it's all like, we're not yeah. there to learn. We're there because it's necessary because without a degree, without a degree, we can't get a job and we won't get employed. And it's no longer yeah. about self-fulfillment or education, but it's about feeding into that idea of productivity and capitalism and work. It's just very like transactional, I think. Like we pay this money, mm-hmm. yeah. we get a degree, and that's it. Like mm-hmm. um I think it's much less experience-based, which is what I think the whole idea of higher ed was supposed to be. Yeah. Um yeah. I think I have a really I think I've sent you this quote before, Amber, but I really liked it. It's resonated with me. Um it's from Wendy Brown and she's a feminist scholar. Um and she's writing about neoliberalism and how neoliberalism has recreated um, subjects. And she says that higher education was once about developing intelligent, thoughtful elites and reproducing culture. But more recently, it's enacting a principle of equal opportunity and cultivating broadly educated citizenry. Higher education now, though, produces human capital. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's made this shift from, you know, developing people in the intelligentsia, thinkers, philosophers, thought makers, 
to just inputs for companies. That's all yeah. it is at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, like, I think it's like very obvious, you know, in the United States, you know, when we, you know, during this, uh, you know, our administration, um, you know, we just recently had a spokesperson talk about and, you know, mention it specifically as us being human capital during a pandemic, wow. you know, um, what, what, when they were discussing getting back to work or like, you know, working for the economy again, you know, so I think that sentiment did, wait, did, did you not? No, I heard you. I, I'm okay. unable to process that somebody actually said that to students, like somebody representing TUJ. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no. I'm saying like from the, the United States government, like our, oh, you know, uh, our president's administration worse. mentioned us okay. as human capital, you know, right. specifically, right. use that specific term. I mean, just so you know. Ugh. Right. So it's not just in our, um, I think, higher education, you know, I think that's kind of, the turn that society as a whole has taken. And, you know, when you think about in Japan, it's the same thing, you know, with the cycle of like job hunting that goes on every single year for graduates, it's always the same. And it's always, you know, um, like many of my Japanese friends say that it doesn't really matter what your major is because you're going to go get hired for a company and they're going to train you for two months to do whatever job they need. And, so yeah, so I think your sentiment, like that, that's dead on. Yeah, it is interesting though. And I think I agree with you. So I've studied in the UK for most of my degree in one year in Japan and I grew up in Canada and I see it here as well in Canada and the UK. It's the exact same thing. You know, you're doing education to get a job, but then there are countries which I don't have personal experience with, but I've read about and heard about like Germany and Norway and Finland mm -hmm. that cultivate a different approach to education. Mm -hmm. Um, I think part of it yeah. is because your education is it's free of cost. And Erica, you probably know much more about Germany than I do. Um, but the way that the German universities integrate like work placements um, within their four-year degrees, their their emphasis, I feel like from the outside, is much less about job placement and more about education as a right rather than a privilege mm -hmm. for class mobility. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, from my experience living there for a little bit, I, yeah, I feel like this general um, kind of attitude towards education is completely different just in general in society, that it's, it's seen as, you know, um, people's taxpayer, taxpayer money goes into funding, of course, these uh, institutions, and people see that as an investment for society. And that's, you know, beneficial for society rather than how, how things are in, you know, um, as we've discussed in Japan or the States. Um, and, you know, I think for grad school or the higher up you go in higher education, you can sometimes even get paid for studying. <laughs> All universities are free. And I think it varies slightly depending on the state as well. But it's definitely a big difference compared to even Japan, you know, where the tuition for universities isn't, I mean, TUJ is, is different because it's a, you know, American universities, but for most, a lot of Japanese universities, the tuition is a lot cheaper than it is in, for example, the UK or the States, but still, yeah, it's a very different attitude overall.
what I think mm. is really interesting about a lot of this conversation that we're having is, I mean, I would say about 70 to 80% of what we're talking about is, is pre-existing issues that doesn't have to do with COVID. But I think what is great about like the bright side of COVID, I'm not trying to say that there's anything great about this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, mine, sorry, the way that came out was wrong, but I meant there is a bright side to this. And the bright side is it's shedding light on a lot of issues that have been just kind of festering for a long time. And people have talked mm-hmm. about education reform before. It's not brand new, but again, the issues we're seeing today as a result are kind of like re-emphasizing the importance of addressing what is ed- higher education supposed to look like and how are students supposed to be treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I agree. Like the silver lining, if you will, about COVID has just really exposed um, it's not only exposed like where the vulnerable sections of our society are vulnerable, it's um, shown that the vulnerability expands like to so many parts of our society. Um, so like to give, you know, and, and this not only expands to like just higher education, but in the U.S. this goes back for years. And it's also like the effects, you know, start from almost the time that we're born. Um, So like before I started at TUJ, I was actually a realtor for many years. Um, I worked in um, housing for, gosh, like since I was like 20. Um, And, you know, it's so strange, like learning about uh, the history of housing discrimination in the United States, how that is really um, since slavery and even since like when Jim Crow when the Jim Crow era was ending um, it was really housing discrimination Um, and when I say housing discrimination I'm talking mostly about like the practices of like redlining where you know lenders will not um, invest money in certain areas because they're considered like quote-unquote bad investments which um, not coincidentally were high minority neighborhoods you know, or like steering and blockbusting. Um, it was all of these sort of like spokes to the housing discrimination wheel um, that even now that we have like uh, laws against housing discrimination, the effects of that are seen now. You know, in the US, the largest funding for uh, public education comes from property taxes. And so as a result, um, when it comes to public education, it's really only nice neighborhoods that have quality fund or, you know, that have quality schools because they have the, you know, the higher property taxes there. Um, and unfortunately, that is not just like a class divide. It's mostly a racial divide as well because of um, a phenomenon called white flight where um, mostly white families left the uh, city limit residential areas and moved into the suburbs. And with that, took that extra funding from them. Um, So it's basically like the rich areas just get more enriched because, you know, they're getting better schools. So their children are getting better educations. Um, They're able to network more closely with, you know, like um, other people's parents who like work at um, high profile companies. So obviously, since they um, have had more access to better education, they have more access to extracurricular activities. So they have a higher chance of getting into a nicer college or a university. Um, and so that's so just it's kind like of a, a never-ending cycle. So it's like a never-ending right. cycle of nepotism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. 
Um, and I think, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, sorry. Um, I was just gonna make a small point. I noticed a lot in the past few years that higher education has been pushed as like the thing that will get you out of poverty. Um, like, you know, Barack Obama has said higher education is the single best investment you can make in yourself. Bill Clinton pushed a lot for, mm. you know, education. And it almost seems like, as we all know, especially in America, um, higher education comes with the cost of having crippling student loan debt. And mm-hmm. it's, it almost seems like it's forcing people specifically from non-privileged backgrounds into, you know, entering into this cycle with the dream of, well, if you do this, then you can break, you know, the, the cycle you're in of um, poverty and you, you can have class mobility, but then they're stuck in a different cycle of student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's um, still a cash cow. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with student loan debt is that, um, it, it seems to affect people even in, I guess, what you would say in higher income brackets. Um, like my, mm-hmm. uh, like my partner back in the States, he is an attorney and he still has like over a hundred thousand in student loans. Um, and his parents, like his dad worked at a very high profile accounting firm for many years. So they were able to pay for his undergrad, but his law school, you know, um, yeah, he he's still paying for that. Um, but the difference is, you know, uh, the children that come from these lower income families, um, when they do graduate and they do start their careers, they're also more likely to um, help support their families that maybe are still in those lower income areas. So it's still, you know, it's not just the student loan debt that keeps them from doing these other milestones like buying a house or getting married or having children. Um, it's also the fact that, you know, I kind of made it out. So I feel compelled to help my family, to help the people that are back, which, um, obviously is great. But the problem is that it's like, for one, it's not enough to help the communities that they came from because they're really just trying to sustain both their lifestyle and, you know, help their family survive. But it's also takes away from their ability to grow as a person or to grow financially as well. So it's like, even though you are investing in yourself and you do get a large return from it. You're still having to use that return for things that you shouldn't have had to do in the first place because of the, you know, inequalities. Right. Yeah. I think it's a really good point you bring up about how inequality doesn't just manifest in, you know, um, having, um, the difficulty to pay for tuition, um, yeah, crippling tuition, but there's so many other kind of factors that you have to consider. Um, like if you're working, you know, two jobs while attending classes, it's pretty much impossible to get, you know, um, and uh, enroll in an internship that's unpaid, things like that, that you don't really, that aren't as obvious, but really do play a factor in furthering the divide, I think. And I thought it was really interesting. I've never heard someone, um, again, because I don't know that much about the U.S., I'm from Canada, but I've I've never had someone link education that way to to housing. And once you said it, it made so much clear sense that I'm now sitting here wondering, how have I always looked at this as a separate issue when it's not? It's it's completely structural and societal, and it's embedded in Mm. so many different factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like, I mean, 
from just from my like professional experience, I've really learned that housing, like aside from slavery, I think housing discrimination has had the second most significant lasting effect in racial inequality in the United States because, um, you know, obviously it's not just affected access to education, but it's also affected minority families' ability to um, obtain and accumulate wealth over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because of that, I mean, it, it really just, it, the housing part ha- infects education, it infects quality of life, it affects, you know, the health of, these, um, of the families affected. And it's also one of the root causes of, you know, things like police brutality that we're seeing today in the United States as mm-hmm. well. So it's really, um, it's kind of like the beating heart, the still beating heart, you know, because even though technically housing discrimination is illegal in the United States, um, the effects of past discrimination are still being felt today and will probably still be felt for the next maybe several generations unless something significant changes in legislation. So these are some pretty like big picture things, right? Like education as a whole um, and kind of the, the issues around that. If we were trying to narrow it down um, a little bit, uh, again, to talk about TUJ and what we all as um, individuals could do, like in solidarity to help students um, at TUJ or not at TUJ right now who are in the midst of attempting to deal with this pandemic, like how can we, like for example, um, Erica, she's not working, uh, sorry, she is working, now working. Um, So she is not a student, so she might be a little bit disconnected from that world. How do we build solidarity and what can we actually do to to support this type of change that we're we're talking about? Uh, Well, within schools, it's much, I wouldn't say easier, but you've got like a clearer path of like goals. Out of schools, like when you're already in the work field and you're trying to like help out people who are still in school uh to be honest i'm kind of still figuring that out and still trying to see what path you can do outside of school but we have alumni trying to help us as well and they're trying to find ways to help us but for the in-school path when you're still in school um we the way we um conducted this or just started this protest in solidarity with our fellow student body is we looked to other universities and what they did to begin with so I saw on Instagram so many stories from friends. Um, uh, was it Colorado University, Boulder, Colorado University? They started off with a petition, and then that was like a domino effect. I saw NYU having a petition, uh, Harvard, and also uh, Stanford has a petition to reduce cost of uh, education, tuition, um, and also discounts. So we started off with that, and then we realized, okay administration's pretty much not going to give into this. They're not uh, on board with this because they're saying that it will cut into faculty paycheck or um, a lot of our money is really important to go towards uh, facilities or just groundskeeping and like the quality of education, such as moving to Zoom or um, funding the library and such. But that that didn't make sense to us. So we tried to reach out to our faculty members and um, of course, I can't, I'm not going to say any names, but one specifically, one uh, interesting faculty member of TUJ, um, very smart person, 
advised us to stand together, share the cost, and bear the burden between student and faculty. Talk to your faculty members, the ones that are on your side or like they see your pain, they resonate with it, they understand with it. Have a discussion together, have a town hall meeting, but without like the townsmen, like, you know, the governor, and discuss together what the issues are, how you can work together to meet your demands, like find the middle ground between both parties of faculty and student. And that's what we're trying to do right now. So we're trying to get together on however we can online or maybe in a park if it's allowed and discuss the problems and highlight the issues and also find solutions towards this. Um, now, of course, like we don't have any clear cut solutions aside from trying to grow by numbers because um, it's really hard to fight the administration. It's really hard to fight even educational public, like people in um, Department of Education in America, you know, it's really hard to be heard if you're a single person. I think much like mental health or any other issue, civil rights issue, it, being heard and like spreading awareness is so key. Cause like when you grow in numbers, when you work together, when you share the cost, you will be heard. Of course, in America right now, they had to kind of dip into rioting as a form of being heard. We don't want that. We don't want to get to a point where we have to riot to get, you know, education costs down. We don't want to have to riot to get respect as a human being. In my opinion, education should be a free right. It's, it's, it is the basis of a human brain, you know? That's what our human brain does. It's plastic, it picks up, it soaks in information. From the day you were born, all you do is learn and you are educated by the world around you. Why should we make bank on that? Why should we capitalize on something that should be a free ride? It's kind of like water. Why are we like not allowing, why are we not providing water to the people of Flint? Why are we not providing housing and shelter to people that need it, the homeless? It's just all part of like the grand capitalist scheme. And I don't know, sorry, going back to the problem, we're trying to talk about ish, uh, resolutions, but yeah, it's really hard to find a resolution when there's just such a big machine in your way. Like it's just clouding everything up with fog from the machine. But you know, like while we're in the fog and we're in the dark, hold hands, like grab to whatever person you can and just link arms and form a human chain but yeah, that's what I think we should start doing. Because I, I don't think there's a lot of solidarity right now in terms of faculty and student. There's a lot of solidarity within students. But it would be nice to see faculty support us and to like guide us, to mentor us how to fight this fight. I mean, if you're a political science professor or even a sociology, psychology, or whatever humanities professor, isn't it kind of a given that you should be on our side too like what are you studying you know those subjects relate back to this issue in some way or form but that's my two cents Brian what do you think um so for uh outside of school um we're kind of we've been discussing several different strategies as far as like how to get um our demands met so currently like as it stands our demand specifically was we are asking for a 20% reduction in uh, tuition and a complete removal of any like auxiliary fees that are associated with other classes as well as the facility fee that our school charges. 
Um, and they have so far they've offered um, they took 10,000 yen about $100 off of the fee so far um, of the facilities fee and they've removed the additional fees for other classes but they haven't budged on tuition um, so in response to that I've done a few things like I have spoken with um, uh, a woman named Brooke Ryan, who is a main campus student, and she was actually the one that started the class action lawsuit that was recently filed at Temple Main Campus. Um, which also I wanted to mention, like the demands in her lawsuit are asking for a much higher reduction in the tuition. But basically, I've been coordinating with her about like what is her law firm strategy, like what are the arguments. And here in Japan, um, I'm working with our alumni network and trying to find legal resources there. Uh, that to me is um, somewhat of a last last resort. You know, no one wants to go to court. You know, especially overseas. <laughs> you know, here in Japan. Um, but outside of that, we're basically just trying to reach out to everyone. Like. We need as many people's voices. We want people to sign our petition. We want people to, um, you know, reach out to the Japanese government. You know, we want people to reach out to the leadership at TUJ, to main campus, to let them know that this is not okay. You, in any other business model, um, it would be unexcusable to charge the same price for a diminished product, you know. Um, I could never sell a house that was missing a wall, you know, at least not for the full asking price of a, of a fully, you know, built house. Um, and that's in every industry, I think. So, um, the response that we received were, you know, the budget issues for the school cash flow issues, you know, we're still, um, the, the talking point was basically, we're still paying the same operating costs. So we have to ask for the same money. But again, in any other business situation, um, that just doesn't make sense. Like we we don't balance the budget. We don't control how the funds are spent. So um, in my eyes, it's not the student's problem that the school doesn't know how to manage its funds. Basically, our issue is that we are the most vulnerable section of the TUJ community. And you're trying to make money off of us without giving us the same experience that for one were advertised to us when we applied to the school and two are something that you know we've paid consistently you know for the past several semesters so basically right now we're working on public interaction um and just building that voice you know outside of the community to put pressure on tuj's leadership I think um, I'm going to go back first to what Amber said, because I thought it was really interesting, this idea of having a kind of coalition between the students and the um, faculty. That's like, wow, it blows my mind. I think that's an absolutely great idea. And like you said, yeah, like for a lot of these humanities professors, there has to be common ground, right? Like practice what you preach. Like if you're going to teach me about solidarity and social progress, like, like be there on the front lines with me. Um, and, mm. and as faculty members, they will definitely have, you know, more ability to put pressure on the actual administration of TUJ. Um, the other thing you said about uh, brand, sorry, now moving, that you were talking about, you know, you wouldn't pay for a house without a wall, like the same price as you would for a house that has a wall. Um, 
And yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. And it's something that, especially when you're talking about operating costs, um, I would assume that the operating cost of, you know, using Zoom for lectures is a lot lower than the operating cost of having actual in-person classes. Um, and yeah, it, it does surprise me that these schools as corporations, I know that they're also having, you know, ex- as, as administrations, they're probably anxious about the coming years. Maybe they're worried that students are not going to enroll in the fall because of COVID and they have their own anxieties. I understand that. And I'm not trying to paint them as completely heartless, but when talking about operating costs, it's like their responsibility to balance, you know, their budget. And if we students are going to be painted as consumers, whether or not we want to look at education that way, then we should be treated as consumers. And this would never be a fair way to treat a consumer with a product, i.e. education. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, that's a thousand percent correct. Like if TUJ is operate, you know, they, it operates as a for-profit, you know, it's an LLC. Mm-hmm. So that's what right. other LLC can demand the same price for 80, I'll be generous and say 80% of its product. You know, oh, you would you would genuinely say 80 percent. Like, so my master's is online as well right now. Mm-hmm. I would give it a I'm not I mean, people already if you're listening, you already know where I go, probably. But I won't name drop just in case. I'm going to say 60 percent. Right. And so I mm-hmm. I guess I'm trying to like. Right. <laughs> um, but I would absolutely, you know, I, I would say realistically, maybe we're at this, you know, the 60 percent line. Um, you know, the, the administration has said that they're offering many of the services online, such as like uh, the counseling, uh, visa coordination, um, the Office of Student Services, the Bursar's office, financial aid, things like that. Um, but there's many things that we were at, that were advertised to us that we're not we have no access to. Like um, TUJ advertises that it has, you know, one of the largest collection, one of the largest libraries of English print books, and we don't have any access to that, not the physical books. In Japan. Exactly. Um, And we had, they're saying, uh, you know, we still have, or at some point we're supposed to have access to the grounds again, but, you know, um, even things like Wi-Fi, you know, in... Japan, you know, many, you know, if you're outside of the, I guess, the greater 23 wards, um, internet connection is not that great all the time. You know, even me, like I live in Kanagawa and um, during any given uh, Zoom session for my class, maybe my internet drops out several times or it's very blurry or, you know, it's, you know, very unclear. So um, I just can't have that same engage that same level of engagement and participation that I would otherwise and adding on to that you know I I have a learning disability um I have adult ADHD um so being at home trying to study is probably the absolute worst condition for people in my situation to actually pay attention Mm -hmm. so and I know I'm not the only one so even though we still have services for um students with disabilities, you can't have that same, um, you can't have the same effect unless you're in person. So I just don't think the argument could be made that, you know, we're still getting the same quality of education as what we're paying for. 
Amber, how does, you mentioned you're also doing art. Does that require studio space? Like how has, how have you been affected in, or is it like history oh. of art? Uh, um, well, right now I'm taking art history, but I am a studio uh, art minor. Um, okay. I'm not taking any of those studio electives or studio classes right now, but I do know from fellow um, classmates at TUJ, they are struggling with their art, um, specifically printmaking. Um, I work as a TA in the studio for the printmaking department, and I totally understand why that's hard because I don't know if you guys are familiar with the process of printmaking. You need this big machine to print things. You know, mm -hmm. it's okay, it's like a big metal drum, and then you just roll things into it, and then out comes your art. You can bring that to your apartment. Not everyone has this machine. It costs thousands of dollars. So how are we going to get any of this? Of course, media fees have been reduced. Like you don't have to pay for any of that as a studio um, art major or minor because for obvious reasons, um, we can't go to school. Um, so it's not too much of an issue in terms of art students. We do get some kind of compensation. We do get like um art kits paints um to take home and then pretty much you're just like left to your own devices at home paint and then go on zoom get a critique get some discussion but then again like with the complexity of art sorry to give a little bit of a tangent the complexity of art you can't really get a full-on critique online on zoom it's not hd 4k quality like you can't see every single brush stroke you can't see every single aspect detail character to a painting so i don't know you know i i think you should get some discount in that kind of thing in that sort of sense because like your professors can't give you like a completely honest and real-time critique of your artwork and also um when you share your artwork on zoom or any other app they use for school it makes your art 2d it just obviously it just decreases the quality of your art it's meant to be in a 3d format artists art historians we all agree you can talk about the art that you're watching or looking at on a powerpoint in class but it's never like the real deal you're never going to get the same experience up close and personal mm -hmm. and i feel like yeah that's reflective of a lot of things right now yeah i think it's interesting too because making everything digitized or putting it all online zoom classes all of this it's it's also assuming a level of privilege that you know students have comfortable, safe environments to go home to in which they can focus on mm -hmm. on these types of things. And I mean, just from my own experience, being home and taking online classes, you know, my grandma lives here, my mom lives here, at my parents' house that I'm back at now. And, you know, it was impossible to have 10 minutes of quiet time to listen to a lecture. Um, and that's that's the yeah. good spectrum of things. Like I am privileged. I'm there are kids who don't have stable Wi-Fi connection, who, you know, don't even have a, a their own room that they can sit in. Like there are so many, or even a computer, or even a computer. There are so many base assumptions here that are rooted in privilege, um, that have come with, yeah, digitizing or you know transferring education online. Um, I'd like to add as well with the the privilege. Um, a lot of the administration are from a different era, um, so. Yeah, we get this argument a lot, not just at TUJ. I'm sure you've heard it from a couple of boomers out there. Like, you know, back in my day, I had to struggle for my education too. I had to pay for my educational tuition costs or whatever. And I'm like, um, sir, ma'am, Karen, that was 1977. And the average cost of education in 1977 was $706 for the entire four years. Average. 
now in 2020, like, I don't even want to say how much I have to pay for my university per year because it hurts. It's a lot. Tuition doubled and increased since 1988 to 2018 by 224%. Okay. Like you can't make that kind of assumption and you can't make that kind of correlation because no, the numbers don't add up. Obviously it's just so annoying. And also just to add more couple of numbers out there. Um, the reason why education tuition costs has shifted and risen so drastically throughout the years is because in the beginning, when we had universities and education program in the 70s, it was all government funded. All of these schools were state funded, mm-hmm. government funded. Um, but then we had that, what was it called? Like taxpayer revolt where everyone's like, I don't want to pay for this. I'm not going to university. I don't want an education. So why the fuck should I pay? Sorry, my language. Why the heck should I pay for education when it's coming out of my pocket and I'm not go- getting educated? It's other people. It's like, again, privilege. You're not thinking about the bigger picture and you're just thinking about yourself. So since then, they shifted the cost of university from taxpayers onto the students itself because they're the ones that are degree-seeking people. And it's just... From hmm, then I on, I like that word to be honest. Sorry, I'm going to interject to say that students are degree seeking. I think in this job market, there is almost no way to get a job without having it's not like I really want a degree, it's like I am not going to get a oh, yeah. job if I don't have a degree. Sorry, I didn't mean mm-hmm, to interject uh-huh. there, but like hearing that, I was like, mm, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's like a necessary step now. It's like high school, like, you're not getting a job without a bachelor's. Yeah. Oh, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. Anyways, and I feel like, (laughs) oh, I also you're doing a graduate, right? So I'm guessing you're doing that because yeah, you like to learn, but also getting a graduate would get get you like a leg up in the world. Yeah, so I have a a liberal arts undergrad degree, um, focusing like my major was international relations. um, And Surprise, surprise, the humanities degree is not, undergrad degree is not incredibly (sighs) employable, um, which sucks to say, but I did my degree because that's what I was interested in learning about. But when it comes to the employability of it, it is not one of the degrees that really makes you a lot of money or even gets you a job. Like if I want to work in IR or politics, I need to have a master's in it um, or in something related. I could get a job with my undergrad degree, but not a job related to what I studied, which to me seems a bit weird because I studied what I studied so I could work in it. Um, yeah. Which is Girl, why- we are kindred spirits in that way. I totally agree with you. Right? Like yeah. I'm studying psychology and I really want to be in the psychology field, but like, you know, as soon as I get my undergrad degree, there's not a lot of jobs out there that are available for me in psychology field. I have to get a master's to be able to pay, be paid. Yeah. I'm like, at least to be able to afford a tiny apartment, not like a comfortable living. Yeah. And unless you mm-hmm. are comfortable saying, okay, I'll do a job that has nothing to do with what I spent four years of my undergrad studying about. But then again, yeah, back to the thing where it's like, well, then why did I study it? Also, I think it's interesting, like thinking about Japan, the context um some of us are in you know in um Japanese I guess in Japanese society in general you're not expected to um go in the field that you study in for undergrad which is so weird to me I mean I grew up here but it's still Mm -hmm. it still baffles me like you study like I have a friend who um 
was studying comparative culture at Sofia and she became she she got hired at an IT company and is now working as a hardware engineer. Wow. Like that's <laughs> like that says a lot to me. Like I don't know how that how you can do that, but um from what I've heard, you know, and what I've seen and read, um Japanese companies just like train you from the start. But that just seems so like it's such a you know like it's like what do you do what are you doing with your degree like you study you study you know whatever you want to study in university because you want to go into that or you want to learn more about it and continue to learn more about it and become more skillful like it just doesn't really doesn't make sense to me and plus you know schools don't look at I mean um when people are getting hired they don't look at um GPAs just like doesn't make sense to me I just don't get it it's almost like yeah. the degree is just for the job like it's just the um status symbol it, you need to get the job it doesn't really yeah. matter yeah yeah um like yeah. in my 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 situation was I decided to go like I'm I'm 30 I turned 30 this year and <laughs> thank you <laughs> um I I decided to go finish my undergrad because um it's like I, you know, I didn't have a degree working in real estate and, you know, I mean, I, I was able to move up, you know, partially because I was working, um, you know, in an area where appearance is, you know, a large portion of the job is, you know, having a face and, you know, obviously having mm -hmm. a white male face helps in those situations. Um, but, you know, I realized that, there's there's nowhere I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore mm -hmm. um I did I in addition to like working I had also been volunteering and doing a lot of activism work in uh, central Florida and so I thought you know for me to actually be able to help people more and have more of a you know um effect on society I would need to go to law school so that is why I decided to even go back to school because I needed my undergrad degree to go to law school but you know, I did this knowing that if I, let's say I once I graduate law school um, and I start working at like the ACLU or any, you know, doing any sort of like governmental affairs job or any public interest law, um, my salary is probably going to be the same as when I left my job, you know? Right. Um, so, I mean, obviously I'm coming from a place of huge privilege to where I'm not doing this necessarily as a financial, you know, um, for a financial aspect, but, you know, for everyone else, it's like that, that's, you're not really getting what you're putting into it, I think. So. Mm -hmm. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. I did. I, I just wanted to say, I, I didn't mean to like critique, you know, I think it's really great if people study, you know, a certain field and find out that they're not, you know, really into that or that there's something else they want to do. I think it's great if they, you know, want to make that change and do, but I guess, yeah, it's thinking more about like the whole kind of attitude of society that, you know, what you study doesn't matter and people just are so kind of, people don't really care about what they study in uni and just the yeah. lack of interest and kind of that whole attitude kind of is disturbing. Um, but yeah, 
I, I think it also has a lot of effect on your quality of life post-grad. Mm-hmm. I mean, you put four, four plus years into a major, into, you know, a section of study and yeah. you go to work in something completely unrelated. You know, what is, I guess, what, what effect does that have on you mentally, you know? Right. So I just think, yeah, um, right? right. And it's like, now that there are also, you know, there's the inherent benefit, like the intellectual benefits of going to, you know, high, of participating in higher ed, like mm-hmm. learning how to interact with people from different points of view or, you know, from different origins. And mm-hmm. I, I think that is where that's like another section that also benefits society. It's maybe not a capital, um, you know, investment, but it's more of like a humanities investment, you know. Um, maybe now we wouldn't have so many people in the U.S. Um, denying science or, you know, refusing to wear a face mm-hmm. mask. You know, maybe mm-hmm. a lot of these societal problems wouldn't be where they are today. Um, I just want to say that 53, like, the percentage of people that seek education um, in the, the United States now has decreased from 53% to 49%. And that was in 2017. That's really interesting to say because like um one of the main driving factors to this decrease was that many people said that education became an elitist group. So just running back to what you guys were mentioning, like you know, mm-hmm. um, Vereen mentioned a while ago that uh, education is just like a fancy, it's like getting a fancy degree just to get fancier jobs for like people who have upper class lives, and it's just yeah it's just so annoying and also back to the point that you and uh, Bram and Erica made about you know the degree that you choose doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go to that job field I also think that we're putting too much pressure on 18 year olds and like people (laughs) coming out of high school to immediately join a university or college yeah you're 18 like you really don't know what what you want to do with the rest of your life you're so freaking lost like you're still trying to learn how to be an adult and like how to use a freaking laundry machine. Like I struggled with that at 18. I didn't want to think about having to focus on my future because it was just such a terrifying thought. It's a big ass thundercloud that I did not want to go near, but I was forced into it because I was expected not just by my parents, but like society to immediately go mm-hmm. get a degree because, you know, it, I mean, great for you, Brent, because you went back to get your degree as an undergraduate mm-hmm. now. But I feel like a majority of society would, sh- I wouldn't maybe shun that or like look down at that idea of going to university at a later stage in life. Maybe we're getting more progressive or not, but like the like higher ups, elders, our elder society, or even, I don't know, the boomers, they want us to get educated so we can get a job so then we can be self-sufficient and like take care of ourselves. But like, that's just such a fallacy in itself, because how can you take care of yourself if you don't even know what you want? Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, you know, I ended up working in a field that's related to the degree that I got in university and undergrad, but I don't know if this is something I want to do in the long term. Like I, I still, there's so many other things I'm interested in. Like, yeah, I completely feel that there's so much pressure. Yeah. I think um this like oh sorry I was gonna say um 
yeah, kind of this idea of like 16 or 18 year olds being told uh, that they need to decide what their career is at 16 or 18, simply so that they can go and be productive as soon as possible and contribute to the economy. It changes the whole idea of what the purpose of education is. Like it goes from being something you pursue um, because of your interest to something you do so you can engage in the economy. And Mm -hmm. it goes back to that whole thing about how TUJ sees you as inputs or how the U.S. government system sees us as human capital rather than as students or learners or people who are curious about the world. I just want to say one more thing. I don't know if all of you have noticed this because we're all doing humanities degrees. Um, The kind of like societal pressure that like, oh, the degree you're doing is not productive enough. It's not going to put enough. Uh, It was not a STEM degree. You're not an engineer or a doctor. Yeah, the... You know why that's like important to them? Like why STEM people get paid more than humanities people is because they're an asset to the government. They can work in the military and like create new programs or like machinery and like support like medical and all of that. Like it's it's useful for people, but they deem like us humanities and culture as not useful because it doesn't benefit the government in that way when in fact it does because it's a cultural heritage and it propels us to progression anyway. Yeah, like the the response I get to when I tell people what my major is um, changes once I mention that I'm preparing for law school. Yes. You know, it's like, right. oh, wow, uh-huh. you're a political science. And I'm saying, oh, I'm actually, <laughs> yeah, I thought this would be a good pre-law degree. And they're like, oh, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense, blah, blah, blah. And just like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> right. Yeah, I feel that. Um. Oh, I wanted to mention one point that, um, uh, Brian, what you were saying um, reminded me and just about um, the digitalization of, um, you know, higher education, what's happening right now. I, one of my professors, I saw him write um, on Facebook how, um, like online classes, they're seen as um, kind of face-to-face classes where you can see the professor and you can see, you know, your other peers. But he was talking about how what really lacks um, is that when you're in class, you're sitting next to other students and how that's important, you know, how um, you have these little conversations about something that the professor said after class as you're walking out, these little, yeah, conversations that really make a big difference and just uh-huh. you can't have that online and so I think uh-huh. there is a lot that it, I think it, this ties back again to how everything's so commodified now and we're seen as human capital and kind of things that skills that you learn um, in the classroom um, that aren't necessarily very kind of tangible skills um, aren't uh-huh. seen as very valuable and they're not yeah so just wanted to say that so i thought yeah that was a really good point yeah i mean absolutely i mean if like especially when you have like a um like any sort of like attention deficit related um like learning disability it's like Mm -hmm. i i physically need that uh, maybe it's pressure you know seeing everyone else paying attention to the same thing you know it keeps me focused as well you know um here you know my experience is related to just this little square that I'm looking at when everything surrounding me is so many different other like, or like, you know, stimuli, you know, 
Mm-hmm. It's just, <clears throat> I just don't think there's any way that you can make a rational argument that this is the same level. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Definitely agree. But I, I think like, in my opinion, to conclude in terms of education, I feel like we're not really that educated at the end of the day, even if you get a university degree, even if you get an undergraduate degree or a PhD, you're never truly gonna learn from these structured standardized tests. The only way you're ever gonna learn useful skills for yourself, problem solving and like handling certain situations is through life. And I feel like we're not taught how to live because we're always focusing on making ends meet, trying to pay back our student loan debts, trying to pay for rent and trying to like balance all of this. So it's just taking you away from the bigger lesson and the bigger picture is that it's life. And when you're focusing on education and rent and all these other things, you're neglecting one thing that's the most important thing in this world, which is you and your mental health. And what happens when you neglect your mental health? You have breakdowns. You have people that go through psychotic episodes that, I don't know, God forbid, shoot up schools or light cars on fire, whatever, riot even. When you neglect the most important education, important type of education, which is mental health and yourself, because you have to focus on making ends meet and trying to get an education and trying to survive in this world, it's just, it makes life so pointless. And that's why depression rates and anxiety, all these mental health issues are rising because it leads back to this other issue of trying to win this rat race when it's just a never ending cycle of just impending doom. Yeah, and no, I I think that's really like an amazing, like an, I don't even want to add anything else because I'm going to sound so uneloquent now compared to that amazing speech. But like I had one point, which was, um, you know, the more, I think the more educated you get, like in terms of the more degrees you have, the only thing you really learn is that you don't actually know shit. Like the more Mm -hmm. school I do, the more I'm like, oh fuck, (laughs) I know nothing about the world. Yeah. Yes, agreed. Like I have professors for like yeah. PhDs and like whatever, and like they're the ones. It's it's always like the first year student who's like kind of cocky and is like, I know everything about this topic, and then oh my god, meet people who are doing PhDs and they're like, I know fuck all. Like I'm just dicking around, like, <laughs> yeah, trying to figure it out. And like I think that's the most educated yeah. thing we realize we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Agreed. And we constantly have to learn. Like you said it earlier, Amber, our brains are plastic. We're constantly absorbing information and we're constantly learning. And that's just like, it doesn't stop with getting a PhD or a master's. Like, oh, great. You're not getting degrees anymore. You're not getting the fancy accolades, but you're still going to be learning. Yeah. um, yeah. Anybody else have any concluding remarks? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was great having you guys. Thank you so much for making time and also just like, you know, the effort you're putting into organizing everything right now. And I think that's, you know, it makes a really big difference, even if it doesn't get recognized necessarily all the time. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Before we leave. But honestly, thank you so much. Sorry. I just want to say, like, thank you so much for having us, you know, like, thank you so much for hearing us out and discussing this and talking to us like we're human beings, because we're not really used to that right now in our university. So Yeah. I just wanted to ask, um, 
is there any like anything you want to tell people to follow you guys on how, how can like people who are listening is the position only for tuj students like is there something a link or anywhere people can go to stay up to date on what's going on to help support you guys oh yes so um on the link to our petition which is open for everyone to sign like if i like right now we want everyone's attention like we want so you know signatures you know i want to you know my dream is to have like even like Instagram influencers talking about this or something, you know, uh, basically I'm just kind of at this like point where the more, the more people equals the more pressure that we're putting. So, um, the link is in my Instagram bio, which is, um, at a brand. Okay. We'll also make sure to include it in the show notes, um, and put it on our social media as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, the link's also in my bio over at Amber Emai. Sweet. Great. Great. Well, thank thank you you guys so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. Honestly, we could probably go on for like three more hours. Yeah. (laughs) I would love to, but you know, it's late here and it's early there. You've got a day to start and I got to get to bed soon. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for hearing us out and like supporting us through our fight yeah we're, we're here in solidarity with you and thank you guys for fighting for what matters and thank you thank listeners you. for listening awesome. um we'll see you in the next episode and make sure to follow at super smash hose podcast over on instagram bye